Good morning. Welcome, church. It's great to be together this morning, even in this unique way. Uh, we acknowledge that this is not how we were designed. We weren't designed for social distancing. We were designed for communion, for um, being together. And yet even in this scattered and uh, socially distanced way, we are still gathering this morning together as the church, with the church around the world and the church that's gone before us, sitting under the word of God. And so that's uh, a great reminder this morning. It's our joy to be together. And my name is Joel Fair. I have the privilege this morning of pointing our hearts to the word of God, to hearing what he has to say to us. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and hopefully you've been following along already with the scripture reading this morning, but we're continuing our sermon series that's entitled The Light of the Gospel. And what a joy it's been to to proclaim and to hear over and over, uh, particularly during this pandemic, the good news, the gospel news of hope in Jesus Christ, to remember what he's done and the price that he's paid for us. And so it's our joy to continue to do that this morning. Before we get started, I wanted to point you to uh, a resource that we have on the sermon page, which is the web page that you're viewing this video on. We have a list of the scriptures that we're going to reference today. Um, so I wanted to point that out in case we're moving too quickly through those scriptures and you don't get the reference to write in your Bible or, or take the note or however it is that you do it. Uh, I want you to know that that's there so you can pull it up on a second device during the sermon if that's what you wanted to do. Even better might be later on this week to uh, go to that page to read those scriptures, those passages in the context that they're given. To read a couple verses before and a couple verses after to, to look at the way the story plays out through both the Old Testament and the New Testament of God dwelling with his people. What a great story and what a great encouragement for us. So I would hope that you would take the time and do that this week. This morning's passage uh, in 2 Corinthians 6 is a challenge. And it's a challenge not in it's difficult to preach or difficult to create the sermon or difficult to understand. No, it's a challenge in that it's a call. It's a call to the church. It's actually... Uh, a call for us to be holy. There's three points that Paul makes in the passage calling to that holiness. And the first one is in verse 14. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then he moves on. And in verse 16, he reminds us that we are the temple of the living God. And finally, in chapter 7, verse 1, it's an exhortation to cleanse ourselves from every defilement. So, Pray that we see that this morning, this call to holiness. And I want us to remember that the context that the uh, second letter to the Corinthians is written in. Remember that Paul, for six chapters now, has been um, reminding the Corinthian church of the gospel that he preached. He encourages them with that. He's also pointing out that there are some uh, super apostles that have come in and, and they have these letters of commendation and recommendation and he reminds them that the, the the commendation that he had was to Christ to look to Jesus and 
He reminds them of the foundation that's been laid upon Christ and that it's through the work of Jesus and His grace alone that we are saved. And not only are we justified in that grace, but we're sanctified in that grace and we're being transformed into the image of Christ. And so Paul's pleading with the Corinthian church to remember these things. Um, And one of the unique things in this passage is it almost seems like this this passage is put in in between two pleas to uh, heart to open the hearts of the Corinthian people. In verse thirteen, he says, "In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also." And then in seven two, he's going to say, "Make room in your hearts for us." And so there's these two pleas of of the heart, and yet uh, many commentators would agree that this is one of the main points. This passage in particular is one of the main points of Paul's letter to the Corinthians to remind them to walk in holiness. And so we want to remember that in the context of the Corinthian church, but we also need to remember that in the context of our church, of who we are. That everything, these promises that are true for the Corinthians are true for us today. And so in light of those promises, what is our response to what God is doing? I want to pray and ask that God would lead us in our time this morning. We pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. God, that it's a gift uh, that today we have access to, to the revelation of God written down, inspired by the Spirit of God. Lord, and, and probably more so today than any other time we have access to to study material, to commentaries, to references, to different things that would help us to understand the Word of God, to see you in light of your Scripture. So we just thank you for that. We pray that we would not take it for granted this morning, but as we look at the Word of God, that it would stir our hearts. God, that we would see you as something that is satisfying is something that is worthy is something that is holy lord i pray that you would uh, do that in our hearts i thank you even for the time of worship that we've already had remembering your holiness lord i pray that you would move in our hearts today that you give us eyes to see ears to hear lord i pray for the, the kids that are listening lord i pray that they would hear your word hear your voice they would know you, Lord. I pray for uh, any guests that are joining us this morning that maybe have never heard the gospel before. I pray that they would hear it and that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would know you and trust you. Lord, I pray for the partners that are gathering in their living rooms today or wherever it is that they're watching this. I pray that they would be encouraged, that they would be challenged, that they would hear the call to live as a people holy and separate unto you. God, we thank you for that. We thank you that that that's the call, not only to our local expression of the church at Cross Point Coast, but to the church as a whole, Lord, and I pray that you would do that in us today. Lord, and that by doing that, we would not look like good people, but we would look like people that are pointing to a good Savior, pointing to a good God. We praise you for that. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we'll we'll jump right in. Uh, 
Paul's first illustration in verse 14. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so this idea of uh, being yoked together is maybe something that's unfamiliar to you if you haven't grown up on a farm or you haven't uh, ever plowed a field before. But Paul's referencing Deuteronomy 22.10 here where uh, it says you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. So it's this idea of the yoke that would hold two animals together to help them pull either cart or plow. If the animals were not equal in strength or equal in height or equal in ability, then they would uh, have a really hard time driving that cart straight or plowing those fields straight. And so the idea here is that we should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And he solidifies this command with five rhetorical questions. So I just want to look at those this morning. He uses these five questions to show the futility of being bound to someone with a different set of priorities. Question number one says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? This was the purpose of the the gospel work of Jesus in chapter 5, verse 21. It says, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The, the, The whole point of the gospel work of Jesus was that we would be given the righteousness of God. And so now we are righteous. And so what can righteousness have to do with lawlessness? What partnership can they have together? Again, in Romans 10, 4, Paul points out, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so the first question, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? The second question, or what fellowship has light with darkness? We know that light displaces darkness, that that when you turn on the light, the darkness leaves. And so those two things cannot be in the same place. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we read it several weeks ago. It says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so light shines into darkness. It displaces the darkness. The third question, as we continue on, what accord has Christ with Belial? And maybe Belial is a term that you're not familiar with. I know that I am not all that familiar with it either, but Belial is referring to Satan. And so what accord has Christ with Satan? How can the two be in agreement? They're two opposite ends of the spectrum, right? One was cast out of heaven due to his pride and arrogance, while the other humbly submitted to the Father's will and was not cast out of heaven, but came from heaven. And in humble obedience, he laid his life down for sinners to save them, to reconcile them to the Father. How can these two things have any accord when they're so opposite? 
fourth question, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And this is the dividing line of humanity. There are those who believe, and then there are unbelievers. And so Paul's laying down this dichotomy between the two. You're one or the other. What agreement has a temple of God with idols? And this this is actually a, a theme that's used throughout Paul's letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, where he reminds them of the, of the idea that they are worshiping God, the living God. And so they should not go back to the temples and to idol worship. They don't want to be any part of that. And so Paul's reminding them that there is no agreement between the living and holy God who actually moves, who is actually good, and these idols that they worship that can do nothing for them. So the question then becomes, how could the church be unequally yoked? We have these five things, and, and the answer to all of those five questions is obviously no. They can't, they can't have anything to do with each other. There's no partnership between righteousness and lawlessness. There's no fellowship of light with darkness. Christ and Satan can't have any accord. And there's no portion that believers and unbelievers share together and There's no agreement between the living God and these idols. So how could we be unequally yoked? Well, the first illustration that's often used is the illustration of marriage. And so we would would encourage not to be unequally yoked in marriage, not to have a different set of priorities that each of you is following. If one is a believer and chasing after uh, Jesus and looking to him, to transform their lives, and the other is looking to a satisfaction found somewhere else, they're going to have different priorities. And so they won't be in agreement, and they won't be in harmony. So that's often where we hear this passage used. Another way would be that in individual covenant or or contractual agreements, that we would not... uh, be business partners with someone who is looking to only make money when we're looking to make money for the purpose of um, giving glory to God, where someone else would look to money for satisfaction and prestige. But the third one, and I think that this is really where Paul's driving at, is this idea of being unequally yoked with those that are believing a different gospel. So ministry partners, we would not want to be unequally yoked with people who don't desire Jesus more than anything else. So the call would be, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What is Paul saying with this? Is he promoting this idea of isolationism, that we should not have anything to do with unbelievers, that we want to steer clear of them in this time of pandemic? Uh, There's a lot of things that come to mind. Is is Paul telling us not to contaminate ourselves with the germs of unbelievers? No, of course not. How would he preach the gospel to the unbeliever who needs to hear it if he's not with them? And he goes further. He says in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 9, 19 
through 23, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. See, Paul is not talking about an isolationism from, uh, from the world. He, but he is saying that we need to remember the priorities that we have, that they are not the world's priorities. So even as we enter in and engage with the world, we preach the gospel. We become all things to all men that some would believe, that they would know the hope that they have in Jesus. That's our goal. And if that's not the goal of the people that we're walking with and, and yoked with together, then there's, there's something wrong. So Paul is encouraging us to be our hearts to be bound with those who are pursuing Jesus, who are pursuing um, the glory of God in their lives. And in all, all of Paul's interactions, uh, he encourages not to sin. He says that we, we should be in the world, but we should not be like the world. We should not sin like the world does. We should pursue holiness. And so that's, the first call this morning is to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And the second call is to remember. So in verse 16, he, he had just finished, what agreement has a temple of God with idols? And then the call to remember is this, for we are the temple of the living God. You are a temple. We are the temple together. And so... The idea of temple, again, maybe one that's you're not too familiar with, but we understand that the temple was where God's presence dwelt during the Old Testament. Um, initially, God's presence was with Adam and Eve in the garden, but due to sin and the fall, they were cast out. They could no longer be in the presence of God because God is holy and righteous and good and other, and he will not be in the presence of sin. And so Adam and Eve were cast out and then God called for himself a chosen people, Israel. And then he gave them direction on how to create the tabernacle, which was a, uh, a temporary tent, a tent that could be built up and then the presence of God would come and dwell in it. And there would be a, a pillar of cloud by day and, and fire by night. And God's presence would rest there and the priest would be able to go in and make offering and sacrifice for the people to, to point to the sacrifice that would come. And then in the temple, uh, David had the idea of building the temple and Solomon saw it to completion and, and built the temple of God where the priest would go in and continue to offer sacrifice and go into the presence, the manifest presence, the Shekinah glory of God once a year to offer the atonement sacrifice. So tabernacle, temple, and then we have Jesus. And Jesus came and he dwelled with us. He was God dwelling with us. 
taking on the form of humanity and entering in. And, and then we now become the church. And the church is the body of Christ. And so we also are the dwelling place of God. So let's look what this looked like in the context of the Old Testament. And thankfully, Paul uses this um, reference to the Old Testament. While it's not one reference uh, found in a particular verse or verses, it's more of a, a chain of verses that are attached together, a chain of ideas and thoughts that are attached together to point us to uh, what he's talking about. And so these Old Testament references are taken from Leviticus and Ezekiel and Isaiah, and I just want to read some of these for us. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12 says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Ezekiel 37, 26 through 28. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Isaiah, the prophet, also prophesies of a time, and he's prophesying to a people that are in exile, similar to Ezekiel. And he's prophesying of a time where God will come and dwell with us again. And it says in Isaiah 52, 11, Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves who bear the vessels of the Lord. So these prophets were pointing to a time where God would come and dwell with his people again. And Jesus came. God humbled himself took on flesh to dwell amongst his people. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. That same glory that was in the, in the midst of the temple, the Shekinah glory, this, this all-consuming glory has now dwelt in flesh. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus refers to himself as a temple. The Jews ask him for a sign in John 2, 19 through 21. He says, he answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Today, the church, being united with Christ, being the body of Christ, now is the, the temple, the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. Paul's already referenced this in his first letter to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. He reiterates this in Ephesians 2, 20 through 22. It says, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple 
in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Often we, uh, in our day and age, make this an individual idea, the idea that my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, While that is true, I think there's a greater understanding and a greater identity that we need to have. And that's what Paul's talking about in, in Ephesians, is that we together are the temple of the Lord. The church as a whole is a corporate as a corporate entity, is the church of God, the temple of the Lord. Peter uses the illustration of priesthood in his letter. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Continues in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So remember, we are the temple. The final call is to cleanse ourselves. We look in chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul's calling us to holiness. Cleanse ourselves. Why? Well, the why is important. And Paul says, because we have these promises. You see, we have the promise of God dwelling with us. If our goal for cleansing ourselves is to appear holy, or to appear righteous or good, then that's a self-righteous motivation. But if our call is to, to cleanse ourselves because we are the people of God, and we long to dwell with our God who is also holy and righteous, then we have to pursue righteousness. We have to cleanse ourselves. And so any other why besides the fact that we have these promises is a self-righteousness. But if we remember the promises, then our cleansing ourselves is actually a response of worshipful obedience. And it's born out of gratitude for the grace of God in the person of Jesus. So Paul reminds us, since we have these promises, and then he moves to beloved. This idea that Paul has longed for the church and and longs for the church to walk in the fullness of what Christ has purchased for them is consistent throughout all of his letters. He understands who he is and he longs that we, the church, would understand those same things. And so we talked earlier about this, how this passage is kind of wedged in between these, these calls to widen your hearts and to uh, make room in your hearts and but this, even this call to holiness is, is Paul's relational, passionate plea to the church that they would experience everything that God has for them. And so he says, beloved, those that I love. And he doesn't say, go clean yourself up. He reminds them that he is part of this. He's part of that church. He says, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us together as the church bring glory to God because we 
cleanse ourselves and pursue righteousness and, and, and die to sin. Every defilement of body and spirit, Ezekiel 37, 23, says they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backsliding in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. That is the why. Because we are his people and he is our God. Because he is holy, we pursue holiness. Because he is righteous, we pursue righteousness. And all of that is bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What does this cleansing look like? What's the result of uh, cleansing ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit? Well, it looks like Jesus. It looks like righteousness. It looks like holiness. We can then truly claim to be Christians, to be Christ-like because he's working out holiness and righteousness in us. And it's evident to the people that live with us, to the people that, to our neighbors, to a dying world that needs to hear the gospel. They see Jesus. So this morning, we have this call. This call to not be unequally yoked. To not be um, bound to someone who has different priorities. If their priority is not Christ and magnifying him and making him known, then we shouldn't be yoked with him. We should not be in one accord with him. Secondly, we're reminded that we are the temple of the holy God. This holy and righteous God who cannot have anything to do with sin now dwells inside of us by the power of his Holy Spirit because of the work of Christ. And so we are the temple of God. We need to rest in that identity. We need to find our hope there, our satisfaction there, and remember who it is that Christ has called us to be. Thirdly, we need to run to Christ, away from sin, leaving, uh, cleansing ourselves from every defilement of, of both the body and the spirit. What, what we do with our actions and our words and how we think and what we feel all of those things should align with who Christ is and the new creation that he's working in us, what he's purchased for us. We need to walk in those things and rest in those things. So that's our hope today. That's, our, that's the call this morning, that you would know who you are in Christ and that because of that, you would look different. You would be holy and set apart. You would enjoy the presence of the living God who satisfies more than anything. So this morning, we pray that we would hear that call. We would respond to it in our hearts. and We would pursue Jesus, the lover of our soul, more than anything. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you that you have called us out of darkness and into the light. Lord, that you have called us out of sinfulness into righteousness, that you have called us to be a holy people set apart that would look different, not for the sole purpose of looking different, but to point to a Savior who saves and makes different. God, we pray that you would stir our hearts. We long for holiness and righteousness, not for that, not for the sake of 
of holiness and righteousness, but for the sake of knowing you, having relationship with you, pointing to you in our lives, Lord, that, that some would be saved because of the holiness that you're producing in us. God, we trust in the finished work of Christ. We know that we in and of ourselves cannot accomplish these things, but it's been accomplished for us by Jesus on the cross. So we rejoice in that this morning. We thank you that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God. Lord, we rejoice in that this morning. We pray that you would stir that in our hearts. Help us, give us the gift of faith to believe it to be true. Pray that it would influence every area of our lives. God, our body and our spirit, that all of it would give you glory because you are worthy. You are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.